Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the GoEasy's fourth quarter 2021 financial results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there'll be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you'll need to press star one on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to Farhan Ali Khan. Sir, please begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning, everyone. My name is Farhan Ali Khan, the company's Senior Vice President and Chief Corporate Development Officer, and thank you for joining us to discuss GoEasy Limited's results of the fourth quarter and full year ended December 31st, 2021. The news release, which was issued yesterday after the close of market, is available on Globe Newswire and on the GoEasy website. Today, Jason Mullins, GoEasy's President and Chief Executive Officer, We'll review the results for the fourth quarter and provide an outlook for the business. Hal Khoury, the company's chief financial officer, will also provide an overview of our capital and liquidity position. Jason Appel, the company's chief risk officer, is also on the call. After the prepared remarks, we will then open the lines for questions from investors. Before we begin, I remind you that this conference call is open to all investors and is being webcast through the company's investor website and supplemented by a quarterly earnings presentation. For those dialing in directly by phone, the presentation can also be found directly on our investor site. All shareholders, analysts, and portfolio managers are welcome to ask questions over the phone after management has finished the prepared remarks. The operator will pull for questions and will provide instructions at the appropriate time. Business media are welcome to listen to this call and to use management's comments and responses to questions in any coverage. However, we would ask that it do not quote callers unless that individual has granted their consent. Today's discussion may contain forward-looking statements. I'm not going to read the full statement, but I will direct you to the caution regarding forward-looking statements included in the NDNA. I will now turn the call over to Jason Mullins. Thanks, Farhan, and welcome to the call, everyone. Today, I will spend some time briefly discussing our strategy and the long-term performance of our business before reviewing the highlights of the fourth quarter and full year. Hal will then take a few minutes to talk about our balance sheet and funding capacity, following which we are excited to update you on our outlook for the future, our key initiatives for this year, and the new three-year forecast we published yesterday. First, I want to thank our team for their perseverance over the last several months. As the latest wave of the pandemic disrupted everyone's holiday season plans and requiring juggling between in-office and remote work, I truly appreciate the perseverance. Now let's start by taking a brief look back at how we got here. From 2001 to 2009, GoEasy experienced its first major cycle of growth, driven by the expansion of our consumer leasing business, Easy Home. We developed a single household name brand, brought in a range of top quality products, introduced competitive pricing and payment plans, and built a network of stores coast to coast to provide Canadians with easy and convenient access to everyday household furnishings and electronics. As we could see the business would soon reach a state of maturity as we approached more than 80% of the market share, 
we pivoted and developed a business model that would fuel our next cycle of growth. In 2006, we introduced consumer lending and began testing a single-priced unsecured installment loan through a new brand, Easy Financial. The thesis at the time was simple, to offer consumers a better alternative to payday loans through a product with a more affordable repayment schedule and, more importantly, one that would help them rebuild their credit. After several years of testing and refinement, we began to scale this new business. From 2010 to 2016, we worked tirelessly to develop a network of model line branches, develop a sophistication in credit risk management and data analytics, build the platform and infrastructure, and create a brand known for providing non-prime Canadians a second chance at access to credit. The simplicity of a single channel, single product, and single interest rate allowed us to scale quickly and capture some of the talent and market share left behind after the departure of Wells Fargo and HSBC Finance from non-prime lending in Canada. This year, in 2021, marked the fifth year of our third cycle of growth. In 2017, we began to execute on our current strategy to diversify our range of loan products so that we can become the one-stop, full-suite provider for all forms of credit for a non-prime consumer, to expand our channels of distribution so that our customers can get access to credit in the most convenient manner possible whenever and wherever they are, expanding the geographies in which we operate, and to help our customers improve their credit and financial well-being by bringing down their cost of borrowing and gradually lowering their interest rate through our products and our pricing as we aim to help them graduate back to prime. Our current strategy and this current cycle has produced our greatest period of growth yet. This long history and track record of consistent performance highlights the organization's ability to adapt and evolve to changing market conditions, competitive dynamics, and consumer trends. Since the beginning of that first cycle of growth in 2001, we have compounded revenue growth at 13%, compounded normalized net income at 32%, and compounded the normalized earnings per share at 26%, producing total shareholder return of over 13,500%, a 20-plus year history to be incredibly proud of. Yet in the last five years, that growth rate has only accelerated. Since 2016, we have grown the consumer loan portfolio organically and through acquisitions, from $370 million to over $2 billion. Revenue is compounded at 19%. Normalized net income has grown at a compound rate of 39%. And normalized earnings per share has grown at a compound rate of 34%. We are even more proud that we have now served over 1.1 million Canadians with over 300,000 active customers today. And that over the recent five-year period, we have reduced the weighted average interest rate for our customers from over 46% down to 33%, with over 60% of them improving their credit score and one in three graduating back to prime within 12 months of borrowing from us. And as I will speak to you shortly, we are just getting started. I'll now turn to our quarterly results. With the effects of the pandemic on consumer borrowing and repayment behavior largely behind us, the fourth quarter highlighted the true accelerated growth capability of our multi-product and multi-channel non-prime lending platform. During the quarter, we invested nearly $8 million in marketing and advertising across a range of media platforms. The strength of our campaign, combined with seasonal demand, resulted in a record number of applications for credit at over 300000 in the quarter, up more than 50% from 2020. Quarterly loan originations surpassed half a billion for the first time in our history at $507 million, which 
led to organic growth in the loan portfolio of a record $134 million, more than a 100% increase from the fourth quarter of last year. This led to finishing the year with over $2 billion in consumer loans. All our products and channels contributed during the quarter. Applications for credit captured digitally through our web and mobile platforms or that of our digital partners accounted for 51% of all volume. 29% of all the new customers we acquired in the quarter were originated through point-of-sale financing with positive growth in every vertical, including retail, power sports, healthcare, and home improvement. Meanwhile, our auto financing business has performed exceptionally well, scaling to 5% of all new customers acquired during the quarter. Through the use of graduating our borrowers to lower tier pricing and lower priced products, we continue to bring down the weighted average interest rate for our customers. During the quarter, the weighted average interest rate on the portfolio declined to 33.3%, down from 37.8% last year. Combined with ancillary revenue sources, the total portfolio yield finished within our forecasted range at 41.4%. Total revenue in the quarter was a record $234 million, up 35% over the same period in 2020. Complementing the robust demand, credit performance has also made an orderly return to optimal levels. The net charge-off rate for the fourth quarter was 9.6% at the midpoint of our targeted range, resulting in optimized volume and risk dynamics. With credit performance now in a new steady state, our loan loss provision also remained flat at 7.87% versus 7.83% in the prior quarter, which we believe reflects the new structural credit risk of the portfolio and the overall economic environment. Operating income for the fourth quarter was a record $79.6 million, up 30% from $61.3 million in the fourth quarter of 2020. Despite the greater investment in advertising and higher provision expense related to the much larger loan book growth, we continue to experience the benefits of operating leverage. Total company operating margin in the quarter was 34%, down just slightly from 35.4% in the fourth quarter of last year. After adjusting for items related to the recent acquisition of Lencare, we reported record adjusted operating income of 86.4 million, up 41% compared to the 61.3 million in the fourth quarter of 2020. Adjusted operating margin for the fourth quarter was 36.8%, up from 35.4% of the prior year, highlighting the ongoing benefits of scale and the prudent management of operating expenses. Net income in the fourth quarter was 50 million compared to 48.9 million in the same period of 2020, which resulted in diluted earnings per share of $2.90. After adjusting for non-recurring items in both comparable periods, adjusted net income was a record 47.6 million, up 36% from 35 million in 2020, while adjusted diluted, per share, diluted earnings per share was a record $2.76, up 23% from $2.24 in the fourth quarter of 2020. While 2021 didn't go exactly the way everyone had hoped due to the lingering pandemic, it certainly finished on a high note for our business. The accelerated expansion of our point of sale channel through the investment in LendCare a new rapidly growing automotive financing division, new easy financial websites, improvements to our products and pricing, major enhancements to our technology infrastructure, and the incredible grit and perseverance shown by our frontline team to take care of our customers were just some of the highlights from another productive year. With a record 68% of our management positions filled by internal promotions and a record employee engagement score of 84%, without a doubt, it is our people and our culture that were at the center of our success yet again. 
During the year, we committed to learning more about each other and how we could contribute to social causes in our communities. We ran our first ever workforce demographic survey, which validated the tremendous diversity and inclusion within our organization. We were thrilled to find that our workforce is made up of team members from 78 different countries, and we believe this incredible diversity produces a unity of talent from different backgrounds and experiences that create a culture of creativity and innovation. In support of our black colleagues in 2021, we signed the Black North Initiative Pledge, demonstrating our commitment to equity and opportunity for members of the black community in corporate Canada. In response to the extra challenges our team faced, we formed a partnership with the Canadian Mental Health Association and increased access to mental health-specific practitioners through our virtual healthcare provider. We also made great strides in strengthening our senior leadership team with the appointment of Jackie Thu as Chief Operating Officer for our Easy Financial and Easy Home Operations, while also elevating Sabrina Anzini and Farhan Ali Khan to C-suite roles. Lastly, consistent with our values, we made a meaningful impact in the communities in which our employees work and live. During the year, we donated over half a million dollars to charities and causes that serve others in need, our biggest year of donations to date. We've always rallied around our value of investing in our communities and operating with a purpose beyond a profit, and our ability to get back to meaningful causes in 2021 was a testament to that. We are privileged that the hard work of our team and the culture we have continued to cultivate did not go unnoticed, as GoEasy was certified as a great place to work in Canada, renamed as one of Canada's most admired corporate cultures for the second time, and placed on the TSX 30 list for the second time, ranking number seven overall for total shareholder return. For the full year, we funded nearly 1.6 billion in loan originations, up 54%. Revenue for the full year was 827 million, up 27%. After adjusting for the acquisition-related expenses, Operating income for the full year was $317 million, compared with $216 million in 2020, an increase of 46%. During the year, we also recorded before-tax fair value gains on our investments of $115 million. Total net income for 2021 was $245 million, up nearly 80%. After adjusting for the one-time acquisition expenses and the gains on our investments, adjusted net income for the full year was $175 million, and adjusted diluted earnings per share was $10.43, increases of 49 and 38% respectively. Based on the 2021 adjusted earnings, the increasing level of cash flow produced by the business, and the confidence in our continued growth and access to capital going forward, the Board of Directors has approved an increase to the annual dividend from $2.64 per year, $2.64 per year to $3.64 per share, an increase of 38%. This marks the eighth consecutive year of an increase in the dividend to shareholders. I'll now pass it over to Hal to discuss our balance sheet and capital position before providing some comments on our outlook. Thanks, Jason. The fourth quarter and recent weeks of 2022 have been a highly productive period in developing our target capital structure, diversifying our funding relationships, and utilizing our excess capital capacity in a manner that will generate long-term returns for shareholders. Free cash flow from operations before the net growth of the consumer loan portfolio in the fourth quarter was $59.5 million, up 45% from $41 million in the fourth quarter of 2020. Approximately $25 million of our free cash was used for dividend payments and the purchase of capital and lease assets, with the balance of $35 million allocated toward funding our record quarter of $134 million in organic loan growth 
the balance of which was funded through available credit facilities. We also elected to use an additional $62 million of our available capital in the fourth quarter and an additional $18 million in early January to opportunistically repurchase our shares at a level we feel is below their intrinsic value. Since November, we have used $80 million of our capital to repurchase approximately 444,000 shares. As Jason highlighted earlier, the performance of our business, rising earnings, and access to capital have led to lifting our annual dividend 38% to $3.64 per share. It is important to note that both our dividend policy and share repurchases are done on the basis that they can be sustained through future periods of economic stress. At year-end, our net debt-to-net capitalization was 65%, comfortably below our targeted leverage level of 70%. Subsequent to quarter-end, we also announced enhancements to our secured revolving credit facility and securitization warehouse. On the warehouse, we syndicated the facility and increased the size from 600 million to 900 million of total capacity while adding several marquee banks. On the revolving credit facility, we extended the term, reduced the limit slightly, improved the flexibility, and reduced the interest rate by 75 basis points when taking draws tied to the Canadian banker's acceptance rate, and 125 basis points when taking draws tied to the bank prime rate. Between the two facilities, we are fortunate to have participation from five of the six major Canadian banks and total capacity of nearly $1.2 billion, a testament to their confidence in our business. Based on the cash at hand at the end of the quarter and the borrowing capacity under our recently amended credit facilities, we have approximately $978 million in total funding capacity, which is sufficient to fund our organic growth forecast for approximately three years through the fourth quarter of 2024. Inclusive of these amendments, our fully drawn weighted average cost of borrowing reduced to 4.2%, with incremental draws on the senior secured revolving credit facility bearing a rate of approximately 2.75%, and incremental draws on the securitization facility bearing a rate of approximately 2.37% prior to interest rate swaps. We also estimate that once our existing and available sources of capital are fully utilized, we can continue to grow the loan portfolio by approximately $200 million per year solely from internal cash flows. With that as a backdrop, I would like to talk about interest rates for a moment. As everyone knows, we are entering a period during which rates are expected to rise. However, there are four distinct reasons why GoEasy remains sheltered from rising rates having an impact on the cost of borrowing on our drawn debt balances. First, and most significant, is the effect of mix-shift. Much like our consumer loan portfolio is shifting towards lower-priced consumer loans, so too is our debt stack. We expect that nearly all the funding to support our three-year organic growth plan going forward will be from lower-cost secured funding facilities. As a result of the shift in mix, even if the rates on those facilities were to rise, they are still projected to remain below our current drawn cost of debt of 4.9% in the quarter for some time. Secondly, all the draws we have made to date on the securitization warehouse and those we will make in the future have interest rate swap agreements put in place to hedge the interest rate risk and fix the rate going forward. As a result, the impact on rising rates only affects incremental securitization draws resulting in a much slower and gradual impact on the overall cost of borrowing. Third, as noted earlier, 
the rate charged on our secured revolving credit facility was recently reduced with the amendment we announced in January. As a result, we have secured a greater degree of buffer before rising rates affect our actual total cost of borrowing. Lastly, our 2019 unsecured note became eligible for early redemption this past November at a premium level that will reduce further this coming November. Those notes were priced at a coupon of 5.375%. However, subsequently in 2021, we were successful in issuing an additional note at a full 100 basis points lower with a coupon rate of 4.375%. As a result, we believe there's an opportunity if we were to refinance the 2019 notes to reduce the new coupon rate, even amidst a rising rate environment. Altogether, we estimate the interest rates need to rise by nearly 200 basis points before we experience an impact of the current cost of borrowing on our drawn debt balances. Turning briefly to the management of our investments, in November 2021, we entered into a seven-month total return swap agreement to substantially hedge our market exposure related to an additional 75,000 contingent shares related to the equity we hold in a firm. The swap effectively results in the economic value of this hedged portion of our contingent equity being settled in cash at maturity for $163 US per share, net of applicable fees. Prior to the fourth quarter, we had previously entered into a nine-month total return swap agreement to substantially hedge our market exposure related to 100,000 contingent shares related to the equity held in a firm, with those shares being settled in cash at maturity for $110.35 US per share, net of applicable fees. To date, we have substantially hedged our market exposure related to 175,000 of the 468,000, or nearly 40% of the total contingent shares held in a firm. As such, the value of our hedging arrangements exceeds any impact from the recent reduction in a firm's share price, minimizing the net exposure. Furthermore, we were optimistic that the portion of the contingent shares we have assumed will vest in 2022 will improve as the performance of a firm Canada formerly paid right unfolds. So with nearly $1 billion in total liquidity and highly diversified capital structure that is providing shelter from the impact of rising rates, we are in an excellent position to fund the ambitious growth plans we have published. With that, I'll pass the call back over to Jason. Thanks, Al. As we continue to execute on the four pillars of our strategy, we have never been more excited about the future of our business. In our release yesterday evening, we provided a new updated outlook, which contains a forecast for the next three years. Note that due to recently introduced IFRS disclosure requirements, we have made some small amendments to the KPIs we typically provide, including moving from adjusted operating margin to reported margin, although the main commercial drivers of the business continue to be provided. Altogether, the forecast is consistent with or better than our previous forecast provided last year. We expect to organically grow the loan portfolio by roughly 75% to approximately $3.5 billion in 2024, driven by the growth and execution of our current suite of products and channels. Our outlook, which contemplates a broadly stable competitive and economic environment, provides a range of guidance to account for unanticipated headwinds on one end, or the benefit of our initiatives performing better than planned on the other. We also remain on a quest to reduce the cost of borrowing for our customers by optimizing for an 8 to 10% return on receivables that in turn produces over a 20% return on equity 
we can deliver attractive long-term earnings growth and shareholder return while concurrently passing along rate reductions to our customers and expanding their relationship with us. Over the next three-year period, our strategy will bring down the weighted average interest rate we charge our customers to below 30%, while the total yield with the ancillary revenues gradually declines to approximately 35%. The constructive economic backdrop and the strength of our risk management and analytics practice results in a stable outlook for credit performance. We expect the annualized net charge-off rate of our portfolio to oscillate between 8.5 and 10.5% throughout 2022 and 23, gradually declining in the outer period. Excluding any new investments or additional share repurchases, the strength of our internal cash generation will also lead to a gradual delevering of our balance sheet, while the business continues to reap the benefits of scale and the operating margin and corresponding profitability expand. To drive this growth, we will continue to invest in our business. During the year, we plan to spend approximately 3.5% of our revenues on marketing and advertising through the launch of a new TV and digital video campaign. We also plan to invest approximately $30 million of capital into real estate and technology, including our digital and point-of-sale platforms, core lending solution, and data infrastructure. In 2022, we will be focused on driving sustained growth through three key strategic growth initiatives. To date, we have assembled a powerful lending business with multiple products and acquisition channels. However, we have not yet fully monetized the power of this platform. Today, many of our customers not only fail to be presented offers for loan products they are eligible for, but many of them would not even be fully aware of the wide range of borrowing options available. Moreover, the cross-selling activity that is done uses a basic approach of email marketing and phone-based selling. Therein lies a tremendous opportunity. We think of our business as a lending ecosystem for non-prime Canadians, a one-stop shop where they can get access to all their borrowing needs from a single trusted provider. In 2022, we will begin to develop a self-serve digital portal through a mobile app that will give prospects and customers alike access to easily see the wide variety of financial services available and dynamically provide them with loan offers tailored to their credit profile and borrowing needs. We hope to launch version 1.0 by end of this year and then begin our journey toward the end state where non-prime borrowers never have to apply for credit again. By way of investments in data, decisioning, and digital, consumers will simply download our app, provide some basic information and consent, then begin to instantly preview the credit products they are eligible for. We think this digital portal will extract maximum value from our full suite financial services institution and dramatically improve the customer experience for our consumers. Secondly, we will continue to invest in our auto finance program. Through both the dealership and direct-to-consumer channels, we believe we can be the number one non-prime, non-bank auto lender in Canada. Over the course of the year, we plan to scale from approximately 1,400 dealer partners today to over 2,200 by year-end, while continuing to scale up our direct-to-consumer offering through auto finance advertising and enhancements to our digital approval process. Lastly, we will be working on several initiatives to scale our point-of-sale lending business through our LendCare brand. From enabling consumers to pre-qualify for purchase financing on our partners' websites, to integrating directly into the sales platforms of our merchants, to developing a full-spectrum solution in partnership with other prime lenders, we anticipate a meaningful lift in originations from financing everyday large-ticket purchases for our customers. We are already experiencing a positive start to the year. During the first quarter, we expect to grow the consumer loan portfolio 
between 80 and 100 million during the quarter, nearly triple the growth from the first quarter of 2021. On the revenue side, we expect the total yield generated on the consumer loan portfolio to decline to between 38.5% and 39.5%, driven in part by fewer days in the quarter, while the net charge-off rate should remain at the midpoint of our targeted range, finishing between 9 and 10% in the quarter. As we reflect on our business, we are proud of our achievements, but far more excited about our future. As meaningful as the recent 2 billion milestone was, it only suggests that we have now just captured 1% of the market share for non-prime credit in Canada, with future opportunities abroad expanding our market even further. Yet none of this would be possible without the incredible team that works day in and day out providing honest and responsible financial products that help put non-prime Canadians on the path to a better tomorrow. We are truly just getting started. With those comments complete, we will now open the call for questions. Thank you. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask, as a reminder to ask, you'll need to press star one on your telephone. To withdraw your question, please, please press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Ricardo Conceicao with BMO Capital. Your line is open. Thank you, and good morning. So, uh, Jason, on the integration of Landcare, could you provide an update on the launch of the cross-selling marketing campaigns, as well as you know what origination benefits have you seen to date as it relates to merging both underwriting models back in November? Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, so as we mentioned last quarter, uh, all of the, call it, back office integration that we needed to complete primarily in the finance department is now pretty much now, now done. And then on the uh, key initiatives, the point of sale platform integration uh, got completed at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Uh, we've already seen uh, several million of originations coming through the second look financing uh, that's now being offered by plugging in the former easy financial credit model in and behind the LendCare platform. Uh, so now that is done. Uh, we're still only gradually rolling it out to the merchants and the verticals. Uh, we're doing it in a, a testing and, and cautious manner like we normally would, but, but it's going well and we're already seeing some, some good lift. Uh, we also launched our first cross-sell campaign uh, this past fourth quarter as well, where we went and looked at uh, LendCare customers uh, that would qualify for easy financial loans uh, and, uh, and launched a, an offer to those customers, again, doing it in a small controlled way in which we could test and learn. Uh, again, also saw uh, several million of originations produced off that first campaign. Uh, so going well, and, and we're quite optimistic about the contribution of those, those tactics on the business going forward. Okay, great. I'd like to, I'd like to raise the topic of accelerating inflation. So first on, on loan growth, how sensitive are your underwriting models to the rising cost of living? And, and the second perspective, on credit losses, 
How do you think about the impact of rising inflation on on the non-prime borrower's ability to repay? Yeah, it's a, a great question. I'll, I'll make a, a couple comments, and then uh, Jason Appel can, can chime in as well. Um, so first of all, w- when we do a, an evaluation of a consumer for credit, uh, we calculate an affordability uh, uh, algorithm. And so we're able to adjust the debt-to-income ratio or payment-to-income ratios based on the changing environment. Uh, we have models that, based on the individual's credit, based on the individual's income, allows for different levels or different thresholds uh, of the uh, of the payment that we provide and the product we provide relative to their current debt and their current income. So, uh, at the moment, it's something that we're looking carefully at, but thus far, uh, debt-to-income ratios have remained quite stable. And in fact, the average income of our consumers over time has actually been rising. So, for the consumer set that we're specifically booking loans for, uh, that ratio has actually improved slightly as a result of higher average incomes. As it relates to the impact just longer term, uh, we believe that our current uh, guidance, the range we've provided, accounts for being able to weather through uh, headwinds related to inflation uh, to a certain level. Uh, If you look at the current uh, Bank of Canada outlook today, they expect inflation will remain elevated, but by the end of the year, uh, begin to drift back down to around 3%, which should then intersect with approximately where wage growth will be. And as long as you get to the point where uh, inflation and wage growth uh, neutralize, uh, then the, generally speaking, the average Canadian is, is, is in, in good shape. I think it's also important to note that, you know, for several years, up until only just recently, wage growth did exceed uh, inflation. And so the, the recent spike of inflation uh, is really at the moment only a temporary temporary matter, uh, provided that it does decline gradually over the next year or so uh, as supply chain opens back up with economic reopening and rising rates start to begin to help uh, correct inflation, uh, then we think we've got a comfortable range uh, to manage credit risk. If, of course, inflation does run much higher, all the way through this year and into next year and beyond, uh, then that's where, as we see that unfold, we have the ability to adjust our credit tolerance. Uh, We can do that either by changing the debt-to-income threshold that we allow so that consumers have more remaining income for those other discretionary expenses, or we can do that by adjusting the actual uh, credit floors that we're using to determine which customers we accept. Uh, So that's kind of how we think about it. We believe it's uh, adequately accounted for to a degree today, Uh, We think provided the outlook uh, for the economy does trend uh, the way it's been recently forecasted, we'll be in excellent shape, but we're also confident that if it goes the other direction and it's prolonged, we can uh, can make the appropriate adjustments. Ricardo, it's Jason here. The only only other comment I would add to what what Jason Mullen said is is because uh, the vast majority of our customers are uh, not owners of their homes but renters of their homes, they tend to be somewhat insulated from the impacts of inflation as it relates to interest rate risk, which is really the predominant concern that uh, one would typically have for lenders uh, in rising rate environments. Uh, the good thing about the go easy customer is the majority of the debt that they hold uh, is fixed rate. It is not tied to movements in interest rates. Therefore, while upward inflation movements would typically result in higher costs for the borrower because lenders would be moving their rates up on things like their mortgages, the vast majority of our customer base would largely be shielded from that impact. 
And one of the largest components of customers' expenses is their rent or mortgage payments. So it's another, it's another piece of why we feel pretty, pretty good about having an appropriate buffer in place as inflation remains high. But we also have the capability to toggle pretty quickly if we see that ratio getting out of hand. And how would the average debt-to-income ratio for your uh, customers compare to the Canadian average, for example? Well, if you look at their total debt levels, because only 20% of our customers are homeowners uh, versus close to 70% for the Canadian average, uh, our customers, on average, uh, carry about a third less uh, total debt as a ratio to their income. So, uh, as, as Jason said, that lack of home ownership just means less mortgage liability and less mortgage debt. And again, that is also the particular uh, liability that's often most sensitive to uh, changing rates. And so they're a little bit sheltered from, from that, particular, uh, that particular impact. Great. Last question from me on, on capital deployment. Uh, could you remind us of strategic benefits you'd be looking for in a potential international target? Yeah, sure. Um, so as we talked about now for you know, a couple of years, we think uh, acquisitions are uh, going to be an important part of our growth plan going forward. Um, I think the first and most important thing to, to note is that we've got a really uh, great uh, organic growth plan in front of us vis-a-vis uh, -vis the forecasts we shared last night. And so for us, an opportunity has to meet a very high standard uh, of strategic fit and financial accretion uh, for it to make sense. Um, you know, we're not interested in uh, putting the organic growth plan that we have at risk. Uh, it can really only make sense if it's an excellent fit. In terms of the type of business we're looking for, much like uh, what we did with Lencare last year, uh, it's a business that fits in line with our plan to offer a range of financial products to non-prime borrowers. Um, we would be looking for a business where uh, there's not yet been the full investment made into widening the product range and expanding the channels of distribution. So for us, it's about really looking for something that's right down the fairway of non-prime consumer lending, where we can bring all the expertise uh, that we've uh, developed over the years with our business here in Canada to bear uh, by helping build a competency in data analytics, widening the range of products, expanding the channels of distribution, and then really focusing on that customer-centric message about helping them bring down the cost of borrowing and, and helping them graduate back to prime. So it, it's a really a business that has the underlying platform that allows us to layer that strategy on top of. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephen Bowen with Raymond James. Your line is open. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, let me just start with, um, I guess when you, your 2024 mm -hmm. guidance, um, I noticed that there's a, a, you know, I guess a marked uh, slowdown in the number of physical locations or physical stores. Uh, I'm just curious if that is implying there's like a, a physical saturation that you have, or or is this a structural shift to to other channels and and, and you don't need more stores? I'm just curious if, if that's, um, you know, are things going more online and, and that's kind of what your your thoughts are? You don't need more stores. No, in fact, uh, the outlook we have for openings over the next three years is uh, very much in line with uh, our plan uh, all along. 
Uh, we had always thought that there would be uh, the capacity for between 300 and 350 uh, retail branches in Canada. And at that point, we would have branches essentially in every community throughout Canada, uh, giving well over 90% of the population easy, convenient access to a branch. Uh, so we're really just, just finishing building out that infrastructure. Uh, as far as the additional growth in the business is concerned, yes, for sure. Some of that comes from uh, new products and new channels, uh, as, as we noted earlier. But more importantly, I think, is to think about the fact that today our average loan book per branch uh, is only $4 million. If you compare that to uh, the books of our competitor, Fairstone, or the loan books of the incumbents in our space I referenced earlier, Wells Fargo and HSBC Finance, they would have an average loan book per branch of approximately $10 million. So a lot of the growth going forward, even though we're not going to be necessarily adding net new branches, will be the process of the maturity cycle that our existing network will go through. And by just that measure alone, you can see how we believe the business has the capacity to more than double before we reach anything close to the average loan book per branch of the competitors and the incumbents in our, in our market. Okay, that's good color. And I guess the second question, now that you've started to roll out the, the auto lending product, you're saying it's accelerated. Can you talk about trends in, in credit, in, uh, repo, um, you know, any anything color on, on the credit side of that, that business? Um, so generally speaking, the credit uh, in the automotive space uh, that we've seen has performed very well. Um, loss rates are below, at or below our, our current portfolio average given the secure nature. Um, we focused on primarily a uh, more near-prime-like customer uh, with our auto loan offering. So I think we've been um, very prudent about managing the credit risk associated to growth in auto. Uh, you know, over the last eight months uh, that we've scaled that program up, you know, largely through our, our partnerships uh, and our investments with LendCare, uh, we've seen really steady, consistent growth and really steady, consistent credit performance. So our model, which is to try to keep testing and learning and gradually growing a business so that as you see performance of loans and the various historical vintages uh, trend, you can get a sense of how they're doing relative to your expectations is the same approach we've taken here. And, and I think as we mentioned in the past, you know, LendCare had uh, been doing testing in the automotive market uh, for a number of years uh, prior to, uh, to the acquisition. So uh, you know, we were in a fortunate position where the jump-off point for getting into that business and really beginning to invest in auto financing, we already had a subset of data we could use uh, and and leverage in terms of establishing, you know, pricing and, and credit tolerance. So, uh, so that's that's kind of how we've approached it, and we're very happy with how it's going. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Our next question comes from Gary Ho with Desjardins and Capital. Your line is open. Great, thanks, and uh, and good morning. Um, let me just first question, Jason. Uh, I noticed just last week there was a transaction in the Canadian uh, point of sale space uh, with Finance It. I uh, just want to see, you know, your your thoughts on it, um, just given the the space and and it sounds like you you want to accelerate your your growth there. Um, I think these guys are more prime or near near prime. You know, do you see the space heating up in terms of deal activity? Um, kind of what's what's thrown through your 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 desk today? Um, it, it, no no real change on on our outlook related to the competitive environment. Uh, to be honest, um, finance it as you referenced. 
uh, is a business focused exclusively on prime uh, and almost exclusively on home improvement. Uh, so they really only occupy one sliver in a different credit segment of the market that we're uh, specifically focused on. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that transaction we don't think changes the landscape uh, really for us at all. Obviously, we remain focused predominantly on near-prime uh, and, and non-prime borrowers. And in that particular segment, um, the, the competitive landscape hasn't changed much. Uh, certain verticals are a little more competitive than others. Uh, auto, auto, for example, is one in which there are more market participants. Uh, however, you know, we believe we've engineered a program in each individual vertical that relative to uh, the others offering those products is, is highly competitive. You know, I think the, the other thing I would state is that, you know, we really have a fairly significant leading position now in non-prime lending, so we certainly have uh, more scale uh, and, uh, you know, are a profitable business. Uh, that's not only always the case for some of the, the other companies that we're competing against, which I think makes it a little bit, a little bit more difficult for them at times. Got it. Okay. And then uh, we haven't gotten a recent update just on your uh, potential product launches. I know you did your auto loan a couple of quarters back. Um, you always uh, kind of have something on the hopper. Just wondering uh, what uh, what's in the pipeline, um, what are you guys testing in the background, and uh, what could be uh, coming to, to market over the next couple of years? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, first of all, I would reiterate that our three-year forecast um, uh, is not predicated on the launch of any net new products. Uh, it's really built on the basis of the products and the channels that we have today, the testing and the learning that we've already done. You know, so our confidence in the ability to achieve the forecast from the suite uh, of the offerings that we have at the moment uh, is, is, is very high. In terms of potential new products, though, um, we, we will uh, start to do some research and analysis on the possibility for introducing a card product in the future. Uh, we think there is, in the medium term, uh, the possibility for a secured card, whereby a consumer uh, that falls below our current credit tolerance level today uh, can obtain access to a secured credit card in order to build credit. Um, if you take a look at uh, a major credit card brand like Capital One, they have a very uh, uh, large and robust secured card program, and they use it as, a, as really a feeder source uh, for consumers that are students, new Canadians, or just have blemished credit, and they're able to get access to a secured card, monitor the payment history, and then gradually graduate them up. Uh, so that's a, that's a product that when we look at the fact that you know, we have tens and hundreds of thousands of applicants that, unfortunately, we still have to decline for credit. There's a really big uh, opportunity there. You know, longer term, uh, you know, we think there is the possibility uh, for the opportunity for just a general purpose non-prime card. You know, once we get to the point where we've built out the infrastructure, the platform, the brand, and we've got a big uh, uh, user base, uh, that is a possibility as well. The good news is that the largest uh, kind of peer in our competitive space, one main in the U.S., uh, launched a general-purpose uh, credit card product to their base business that's very similar to ours uh, last year. And uh, so far, it's gone well, but we're able to kind of just sit back and monitor and look at what they've done, how they do it, how it performs before we have to make those kinds of, those kinds of decisions. So for right now, we're very happy with the product range that we have. We think it, it does all the lifting in terms of fueling the growth forecast. Uh, but over the next couple of years, we're certainly going to be, you know, continuing to 
do the market research on what potential products we, we might add in the future. Okay, perfect. Uh, my next question, you've been pretty aggressive with your buyback uh, in Q4. Now you also mentioned uh, also, you know, so far in Q1 as well. So looking out, you know, how do you think about your NCIB, just given where the share price is uh, creating today? Yeah, hey, hey Gary, it, it's Hal here. So, uh, you know, as, as per our uh, strategic uh, sort of plan, uh, where we feel that the share price has been uh, depressed given market conditions, uh, we'll continue to evaluate the market. Uh, to determine whether uh, you know a, a share buyback would be appropriate, uh, you know we felt that given where the share price was uh, going through November or through January, we felt that that was a great investment on our part, uh, given the intrinsic value there. Uh, uh, you know, with with our leverage uh, continuing to uh, uh, naturally reduce with the uh, the great cash flows coming through the business. Uh, we feel that, uh, first and foremost, uh, continuing to use our capital and deploy that capital for uh, the growth of the overall loan book uh, would be number one. Uh, you know, the product diversification categories that Jason referenced earlier as well, number two. Uh, and then, you know, where our leverage position is quite nicely, uh, uh, currently at 65% net to net cap relative to our, our target of 70%, we feel that there's still uh, room there to continue to uh, to be active in the market uh, around share buybacks. Hey, Gary, we're, kind of, we're, in a, we're in a fortunate position where even if you take the forecast that we provided, uh, which, which as noted earlier, accounts for 75% increase in the loan book, as Hal said, the business will continue to still naturally uh, delever and so for us, it's really about figuring out as we accumulate that extra capital capacity um, and survey the opportunity for potential acquisition investments, you know, for, you know, in the event there's a great opportunity, then that's clearly where we would like to use the capital because that's going to be uh, strategic things that really do fuel the long-term growth of the business. Uh, but uh, in the meantime and in the interim, when the, uh, when the share price is uh, at a level we think is Below its value, then that is how so we can use that extra capacity in our balance sheet to uh, to opportunistically buy shares, and, and that'll be the approach going forward. Okay, perfect. And if I can just sneak one more in for Hal, um, just a quick numbers question. There was a 3.4 million integration cost that was removed from the calculating your adjusted number. Um, first, you know what did that pertain to? I think there was some reference to software write-off, and then second, you know, did that all flow through in the corporate segment? Yeah, sure, Gary. Uh, so, so we had planned uh, through the course of our LendCare integration, our, our auto and POS platforms that uh, we had on the uh, easy financial side uh, to merge and integrate those to create synergies as part of our synergization uh, with, uh, with LendCare. So effectively what you're seeing is uh, uh, the write-down on those particular assets as we uh, integrate with the uh, with the LendCare platforms. And, that, and as noted earlier, Gary, we're, we're essentially done the main pieces now. So uh, we kind of, you know, tried to get to completing all those major projects in 2021. So POS platforms integrated, the auto platforms now integrated. So um, 
So those are now mostly complete, and, and you won't really see any other material integration costs uh, going forward. Yeah, you'll you'll really just uh, in terms of the adjustments uh, be uh, really just uh, seeing the uh, amortization on our intangible asset as part of the uh, initial acquisition flow through the uh, flow through the P&L on an adjusted basis. And, and sorry, Hal, did that 3.4 million all flow through to corporate, or some of it came through on the easy financial side? No, that's 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 in the corporate uh, corporate segment. Okay, because if I do back that out, your your corporate adjusted income would have been negative 13 million, which is uh, pretty low versus you know last number quarters. Um, you know, any comments there? Yeah, so uh, we actually uh, at year end uh, we have accruals that uh, we put in in place, uh, and one of those accruals would be around uh, compensation uh, around our incentive program. Uh, so we uh, we made an adjustment in the fourth quarter uh, that actually improved uh, our, our overall profitability, lowered expenses. But you should see that normalize uh, in Q1 back to. Uh, uh, more recent levels. And can you quantify that, by any chance? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was uh, in around the range of four million dollars in the aggregate around those overall accruals that I just uh, referenced. So I think Gary, corporate uh, the corporate bucket um, was probably like in the seventeen million range per quarter. Uh, that that's kind of where you can expect it to, to start off uh, this year, uh, so more consistent with the second and third quarter. Uh, and then total salaries and benefits uh, was running in the low $40 million range uh, in the second and third quarter. That's about where you'll expect those that line to pick up as well. So um, it's similar to what you would have seen in Q3 is about what you'll see in terms of jumping off point uh, beginning this year uh, or a little higher. Perfect. Okay, thanks for the additional color. Sure. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jamie Gowen from National Bank. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks. Uh, <clears throat> first one, uh, Hal, for you. I just want to clarify, you made a comment around uh, interest rate sensitivity and a 200 basis point increase before uh, funding costs are impacted. Um, just correct me if I'm wrong or, or provide more clarity. So the, the funding cost as it stands today uh, versus a fully drawn uh, funding cost, let's say over the course of the next two or three years, that fully drawn funding cost could withstand a 200 basis point increase before it, it reaches the cost that we're facing today. Is that the right way to understand it? Yeah, that's right, Jamie. So, you know, basically if you look at the, as, as you put it, the fully drawn uh, rates that we're at currently uh, in or around the high 4% range with the work that we've done to improve and optimize uh, our debt stack, our incremental draws uh, will be on our revolving credit facilities. Uh, and those, you know, just kind of given the rates that we've uh, been able to establish uh, will give us a nice natural buffer uh, relative to uh, the rates on our high-yield notes that are proportionately uh, uh, taking up a, a higher component of our overall debt stack. So you'll see that just, you know, naturally as a, pro uh, a product of the overall mix in the debt stack, uh, our overall uh, cost of funds continuing to improve, not, and, and notwithstanding, you know, a, a rising rate environment in that regard. 
And then just lastly, uh, just to note that we continue to uh, swap out and hedge uh, any any incremental draws that we take on uh, our securitization facility as part of the normal course. Right, and it does not uh, factor in a, a redemption of the high yield notes that are outstanding today that would, you know, I guess in theory, be uh, attractive to redeem in November of this year. That's right. So that would be another opportunity, and we'll keep a close eye on uh, on the rate environment. Uh, you know, to unwind that, you know, with the uh, with the uh, premium on the call option. Uh, unwinding our hedge, you know, we've got some tax uh, tax adjustments that we'd have to take in, uh, deferred finance cost adjustments. So we'll look at that relative to uh, the cost of uh, uh, you know uh, calling calling that 2019 note early relative to the rate environment. But we do think that there's going to be uh, uh, an opportunity there um, as we you know look at the, the rates and the outlook. Uh, through the balance of the year. Okay, great. Um, for Jason Appel, just is there any color you can provide around the performance of the uh, core subprime unsecured borrower uh, relative to the more secured or, or higher quality risk adjusted uh, borrower, whether it's within the Go Easy platform or the LendCare uh, channel? Can you talk about some of the uh, how those how those borrowers have performed recently, uh, as we've uh, as we've seen a little bit higher inflation rates, and uh, um, well, maybe even a little bit on the interest rate side as well. How those borrowers have performed? Are there any differences in the uh, credit performance? So there's a little bit of a difference, only because you know your secured borrowers clearly will overall generally prioritize you for payment repayment uh, before they will an unsecured borrower. So. One of the benefits of, of now having a more diversified portfolio in terms of security with the addition of LendCare and, the, and our expansion of our own home equity product is, you know, as we've emerged out from the, the pandemic and customers have returned to their what we call pre-pandemic behaviors, we aren't really seeing any material change in the way in which our uh, secured borrowers are performing. We are, however, as you would expect to see some normalization of behavior from your unsecured borrowers. But I would say because of the structural changes we've made to the underlying loan portfolio over the past couple of years, both before the pandemic began and certainly throughout the pandemic where we modified our underwriting, we're now carrying a less risky, unsecured book than we did two years ago. So while the, the market has certainly returned to normal behaviors on the part of unsecured borrowers, much like they were before the pandemic, we're not seeing the same degree of that impact on our overall portfolio, it because proportionally there are fewer of compared to secured. And secondly, uh, the underlying credit mix of those customers is better uh, over the last couple of years since we've made changes to the book. So I'd say that while the, the, the market has normalized, we've seen a bit of a disproportionate benefit in the overall credit quality of our book, certainly on the secured side for reasons which I've mentioned before, but also on the unsecured because of some of the adjustments we make, including the continued movement of risk-adjusted pricing, which tends to attract a better overall credit quality customer even on the unsecured side. Maybe just to add to that, uh, James, put, put it another way, if, you, if you'll recall the, the guidance we had um, uh, provided before, just before we had did, did the LendCare acquisition was that the Easy Financial Book, which at the time, as you know, was largely unsecured, albeit the home equity portfolio was about 10% of the book, uh, we had guided the loss rate range of between 105 and 125 
So call it a midpoint has been the 11th uh, for that business. Uh, there has been no change to our now performance or outlook uh, of that segment and that uh, that part of the book. So while, as Jason said, credit has now normalized in the last couple quarters, you can see that for the total portfolio, we're expecting stability both in the first quarter and the balance of this year at these levels. And we're seeing that stability in both the secured side and uh, the new now run rate of the unsecured uh, portion as well. Okay, that's uh, that's helpful, uh, color. Um, last one, uh, Jason uh, Mullins. You talked about the uh, the outlook for for the auto portfolio and becoming the number one non-bank player in that market. Uh, I suppose that's more than just a 2022 target, but it, you know, within that, can you can you talk about where you sit today? What's the size of that market now? Um, and uh, and, and yeah, I guess. Uh, how do you how do you plan, or what's the strategy to grow from the the fourteen hundred dealers to two thousand dealers as one of the strategies? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess um, I guess the first thing I would say is if you look at the approximately uh, two hundred billion non prime credit market, albeit it came down a little bit through the pandemic to around one hundred and eighty five billion or so. If you look at that market and unpack it. Uh, and categorize it into four categories, installment loans, uh, lines of credit, credit cards, and auto financing. Auto financing would be the largest category amongst those four. Uh, it would represent over $50 billion of the 185 uh, marketplace. So if you think about the business today, the vast majority of our portfolio, nearly the whole $2 billion, is essentially in the smaller segment of that market, the installment loan category, and yet auto represents this, this, this large and significant portion of that non, non-prime credit market. Um, so although we're not breaking out exactly the proportion of the portfolio, uh, it, it's, uh, it is a um, reasonable size portfolio today. Uh, in fact, you know, we think relative to where we are relative to uh, some of the other lenders within the non-prime market, we're, 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 we're probably at or soon surpassing some of the smaller players. Uh, so we've done quite a, quite a good job in the last uh, eight months. Um, and so the outlook for us is we think that given the brand, uh, the scale of the business, the platform, the cost of capital, we can definitely be the number one non-bank, non-prime player. You know, for, for us, that means not with inside the window of the three-year forecast we've provided, but beyond scaling the auto loan portfolio uh, north of a billion in consumer loan balances. Uh, that's the level we would need to see that auto business uh, 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 grow to uh, before we'd be in, in the position of approaching number one uh, in the industry. So clearly, you know, a very significant uh, opportunity for growth uh, over the over the long term. Great, thanks for that color. That was it for me. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Jim. Uh, operator, is there any other uh, questions in the queue? Thank you. Our next question comes from Marcel McLean from TD Securities. Your line is open. Okay, thanks for taking our touch. I was wondering if I was going to get on here. Um, so, uh, in terms of uh, the loan growth forecast you guys have provided, it looks like you're looking to grow about half a billion dollars a year for each of the next three years, which would imply about 70% growth over, over where we are today. Uh, a few questions on that. Um, 
you know, it looks like you're you're looking to open a fewer amount of stores this year than than you did last year, and and over the next few years. Um, just wondering where the the growth is is coming from. How how you break it down between the, the new auto product, uh, your traditional unsecured product, and your other products. Uh, and secondly, if the if you're expecting the average credit score of your consumer to remain relatively stable, or if that is going to change at all? Yeah, sure. So, um, so we don't provide the specific and exact breakdown at the product level, but what I can do is maybe bucket it a little bit for you. So today, uh, about 30 to 35% of our portfolio is secured, and that really represents home equity loans, uh, uh, power sports lending, uh, automotive financing, and home improvement lending. Uh, with the unsecured loan uh, and retail point of fin- uh, point of sale finance and healthcare point of sale finance uh, falling into the unsecured uh, bucket, clearly the unsecured loan, the straightforward unsecured loan, is the largest product today. As that's that's been the one that we you know uh, historically built the business on. That proportion of secured volume we would expect to grow from about 30 to 35 percent today to between 40 to 50 percent over the three years of this plan. So. Clearly, that would mean that there has to be good quality growth in all the categories, including unsecured lending, but we will see a little bit of a shift towards more secured product, whether that be auto, power sports, home equity, uh, et cetera. So hopefully that helps provide a little bit, uh, a little bit of clarity and explanation. Uh, as it relates to the average credit quality uh, of the customer, we think the uh, average credit score will be mostly stable with a little bit of an increase. Uh, clearly, the products that we're uh, migrating into uh, often will attract uh, and result in us retaining a slightly more near-prime customer. So that would result in the uh, average score uh, gradually climbing over that period. Okay, thanks. Uh, and, and then secondly, um, in, in terms of you know your new initiatives, um, how do you see the split of your originations coming in? And how that's going to shift over the next three years in, from your in-person and online channels and point of sale, et cetera. How is that going to – presume that the, the online channel uh, and point of sale would have the lowest uh, customer acquisition cost. Uh, can you give some more details there? Yeah, so um, we don't expect the mix of application volume uh, to shift meaningfully over that three years. Um, Online, which represents about half the uh, application volume, uh, and point of sale, which represents a third of the application volume, uh, and then the balance coming from sheer kind of walk-in traffic to our retail outlet. Uh, we think that that volume and that mix uh, is pretty is pretty steady and pretty stable. Uh, it has been now for a few few quarters, and, and we think it'll be pretty consistent going forward. Um, you know, clearly as the uh, economy is now reopened again, and, and there's less COVID restrictions. Uh, we anticipate uh, a little bit of a resurgence in volume coming through the retail channel and, and just consumers, you know, walking into our, our retail outlets. Uh, but on the flip side, given the number of new merchants and dealerships we're going to add through point of sale and auto, uh, and given the investments we're making in digital, uh, that'll that'll largely offset that. And, and I think all the all the channels will will deliver pretty proportionate proportionate volume. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, for me, 
Uh, just on the higher charge-off ratio, we saw the score. Like it, it did come in at the, the bottom end of your your range you had provided for us last quarter, but still a, a noticeable step up quarter over quarter. Um, just wondering what was different about this quarter that caused that that pretty big jump, and what can you offer that would give us confidence that we're not going to see this continue to rise materially from here? Because right now we're sort of at the the midpoint where you said this is a sort of a, a steady state, but in, what caused the jump from last quarter that, that's not going to continue to rise from here? Yeah, so if you'll recall, back in about the uh, early to mid part of the summer, uh, we started to make it clear that as a result of the uh, excellent distribution of vaccinations, uh, as a result of the reopening uh, of the various uh, industries within the economy, that was going to start to re uh, result in borrowing behavior returning to normals, normal and credit performance uh, returning to normal. And if you think about it, because our charge-off rates uh, are such that they charge off in, you know, the 90 to 180-day window, then it's the fourth quarter when that normalization really actually starts to uh, be, be prevalent within in the portfolio. And so that's uh, how the performance of the year unfolded, and it's right in line with uh, our expectations uh, and, and where we anticipate it to be. If you look at our uh, charge off rate in the fourth quarter, 9.6%. Our guidance for Q1 uh, is between 9 and 10%, and our guidance for the full year is between 8.5 and 10.5. So, you know, we're providing a forecast that we think is, uh, that we're very confident in, and we think is a, a clear indication that all the metrics we're seeing around delinquency, payment performance, uh, mix of the book, are all coming right in line with what we have engineered and optimized to be the ideal mix uh, and the ideal relationship between volume and, and losses. Uh, I would also note that, as mentioned in my earlier remarks, uh, we've been providing these sort of uh, forecasts uh, since the third quarter of 2012, so just coming on 10 years uh, of, of providing these forecasts, and um, pretty much all of those forecasts uh, we, we, we've delivered on. And, and that's really because we believe that the range we provided is very reasonable, properly accounts for uh, any headwinds or tailwinds being captured within the range. Uh, and then equally because, as, as Jason spoke to earlier, the uh, credit models that we use and the affordability calculations that we use give us the ability to make adjustments dynamically. If we see a trend that we're uncomfortable with in the quality of the applicants, in the delinquency, we can very quickly make adjustments so that in the then subsequent quarters, we start to see a shift in the mix of the book, and that helps us ensure that we uh, uh, travel within the range in a, uh, in a stable manner. Okay, thanks. That, that's it for me. Thank you very much. No Thank you. Our next question comes from Brian Joseph from Imperial Capital Partners. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Trudeau mentioned in his mandates potentially changing the, the rate of interest. Any thoughts on what could happen there? Yeah, I'll make a couple comments. Yeah, sure, make a couple comments. So um, what the government has done is suggested that they're going to run a consultation uh, on, uh, on the non-prime lending market and, and interest rates and payday loans. Uh, over the last several decades, we've seen similar type consultations done uh, at the federal and the provincial level. 
And so at this point, we do expect the consultation to get done, but much like in the past, uh, we think that once they unpack and really understand the significant role that non-prime lending plays in the financial system, uh, much like those past instances, uh, it's unlikely to result in a change. We think the probability of there being a change is, is low. Uh, if there is a change, uh, we think it's more likely to be uh, in the payday loan market. Uh, the payday loan market is the, is the market I think regulators have a, 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 a greater concern over. It's certainly a product that is much less uh, helpful to the borrower, more expensive, help, uh, doesn't help them rebuild credit, uh, whereas the product category that we're in uh, serves a very meaningful purpose. Uh, not only provides access to critical financial products, uh, but helps people rebuild and establish credit. So uh, we're not sure when the consultation will come. Expect it to come at some point, likely this year. Uh, we think they'll be looking carefully at input from uh, consumers and from industry. And, uh, and if it uh, trends the way it has in the past, uh, we don't anticipate a change. Having said that, um, you know, our business is in an excellent position today. Our average interest rate has trended down for the last five years, as highlighted earlier. The weighted average interest rate today sits well below where the current uh, rate cap is in Canada. Our strategy and our model is intended to continue to drive that rate down. So while we'll certainly be advocating for our customers and advocating on behalf of non-prime Canadians, uh, to try to make access to credit as open as free as possible. Uh, our business is in excellent shape to be able to evolve and adapt. So uh, that's how that's how we think about it today. Very helpful. Thank you, and kudos on the great quarter. No problem. Thank you. And I'm showing no further questions from our phone line, and I'd like to turn the conference back over to Jason Muller for any closing remarks. Great. Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, joining today's call. If there's uh, no more questions, uh, then uh, have an excellent day, and we look forward to updating you again at the next quarter. Uh, have a fantastic day, everyone. Bye now. Thank you. This does conclude today's conference call. Thank you for your participation, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.